All rise, and welcome to this sports court of public opinion we call Foul Play-By-Play, the podcast that provides play-by-play and color commentary on foul play in sports on and off the field, pitch, court, and ice. I'm your host, the dishonorable Anthony Variano, and I'm joined by my attorney and fellow sports fan Michael Haas of McClarity and Haas Law in Glendive, Montana. If you're a listener in Montana in need of a defense attorney, don't hesitate to call Mike at 406-377-2654. What's new, Mike? Just got back from the state prison, so I'm ready to go. All right, well, let's get right into the headlines because there's a ton of them. Since the Miami Dolphins are one of the first NFL teams to report to training camp, they were the first to put police brutality protest penalties in writing as required by the league. I'm calling them police brutality protests instead of anthem protests because that's what they are. The players are protesting police brutality against minorities, not the national anthem. Yet the media was quick to dub the protests as anthem protests, which has stuck. If you search Google using the terms anthem protests, you get 13.6 million hits. Using the search terms anthem protests, you get almost 1.5 million hits. If you search police brutality protests, you get just 187,000 hits. So simply assigning a name to these protests has been problematic for the NFL players. The Dolphins stuffed the police brutality protests in with other acts of conduct deemed detrimental to the club, punishable by up to four-game suspensions, but they reportedly have no intent of suspending players four games for protesting during the national anthem. Co-owner of the New York Giants, Steve Tisch, has since announced that their players will not be subject to penalties for protesting police brutality during the national anthem. The public backlash to the Dolphins' announcement has forced the NFL to put a freeze on the national anthem protest policy, and the NFL Players Association and the NFL are finally working out an agreement to end the anthem feud, as should have been the case in the first place given the collective bargaining agreement. Since the Dolphins' announcement and resulting public backlash, Donald Trump has tweeted his displeasure with the anthem dispute, asking, Is it in contract that players must stand at the attention, hand on heart? The $40 million commissioner must now make a stand. First time kneeling, out for game. Second time kneeling, out for season, no pay. To answer the president's question, players' contracts do not include an anthem clause, and neither does the collective bargaining agreement. And the commissioner taking his recommended stand would be devastating to the league, given the NFL Players Association membership being almost 70% black. That union, at least, still has power. There is no NFL if only the black players protest during the anthem, and that hasn't been the case. Here to discuss what kind of agreement we can expect from the NFL and NFLPA anthem negotiations is our labor expert from peoplesworld.org, Al Neal. Thanks again for joining us, Al. Hey, thanks for having me. It seems like this stuff uh, just keeps coming up day after day. Yeah, it keeps us in business. Uh, So what kind of agreement do you foresee uh, the NFL and the players adopting? You know, to be quite honest, I kind of sort of think that with the pressure and the backlash that's going on with all of this, especially in light of the uh, Miami Dolphins revelation, I see the anthem policy being scrapped Mm. and uh, leaving it up to, you know, letting players take action however they see fit, as was originally discussed. You know, one of the things Donald Trump's tweet, I think, is funny is that, one, again, it isn't in the contract. It's also not uh, in the collective bargaining agreement. But what's funny is by the NFL actually making this a workplace rule, they have now essentially made it protected concerted activity. So if a player takes a knee for uh, during the anthem against police brutality, racism, all of that stuff, it's also protected now because he's also taking a knee against an unjust workplace rule, which falls under the protected concerted activity part of the National Labor Relations Act. So I think it's very interesting that 
the league has actually shot itself in the foot. And I think that the moment that uh, the story broke about the Miami Dolphins' uh, proper conduct policy, that was a light bulb moment for the league, realizing that they are not approaching this the correct way, and that the only way to actually move forward is to have a legitimate discussion with the players' union. Right. Well, and it's sad that they needed the uh, public backlash of the uh, Dolphins' announcement in order for that to take place. So is this something that'll take precedent come 2021 collective bargaining? I mean, uh, I, I... Imagine the players value their right to protest maybe more than the right to use cannabis, but less than they value guaranteed contracts. Would you uh, agree with that? I agree. I, I believe that it's going to be something that definitely does come up during negotiations. Uh, if not, you know, uh, it's because they're going to be able to have a negotiation and adopt a policy that that makes sense now. Um, but either way, you know, depending on how this plays out, it's definitely going to be something that's going to be talked about during uh, collective bargaining sessions. Absolutely. What about you, Mike? You think that the players value the uh, protesting more so than cannabis and less so than guaranteed contracts? Sorry, my dogs were barking up. Just <laughs> put them <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, yes, I would. Um, I think the money is a lot more important, especially with, I mean, when you compare it to baseball or anything else. I think, I mean, the money's got to be more important with uh, what these guys stand to lose by something they have absolutely no control over, which is an injury, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in, in a game that's, you know, you're going to get injured. It's not a, a question of if, it's when. Uh, so on Exactly. The, yeah. So on the topic of guaranteed contracts, uh, that brings us to our second headline. Uh, for our third consecutive season, running back Le'Veon Bell will play for the Steelers without a long-term contract in place, providing him no job security if he were to be injured in 2018. Pittsburgh's final offer to Bell, which is likely to be the final contract the Steelers ever offer Bell, was reportedly worth $70 million over five years, but it only contained $10 million in guaranteed money, according to the NFL.com's Ian Rappaport. And Jason Fitzgerald of OverTheCap.com tweeted that the deal would have been virtually identical to the last contract Pittsburgh offered because the boosts in value would have been based on the increase in value of the running back franchise tag. Bell's franchise tag with Pittsburgh will pay him $14.55 million this season, but if he were to be injured, Bill might end up with a mostly unguaranteed contract in 2019 if he's healthy enough to play at all. Bell isn't the only player griping about the NFL's non-guaranteed contracts, but running backs seem to be the loudest proponents for guaranteed contracts and for good reason. Los Angeles Rams running back Todd Gurley told TMZ Sports that all NFL players deserve guaranteed contracts and expects a lockout by the players to get them in 2021. Running back DeMarco Murray chose to retire at age 30, and during his short seven-year career, Murray amassed just over $25 million. That's what you Darvish will make this season, despite spending much of it on the disabled list. Murray, remember, led the league in rushing and yards from scrimmage just four years ago. So a guy who was arguably the best player in the sport at one time made the same amount of money over his career as a top 30 starting pitcher will make this season, despite appearing in just eight games thus far. Major League Baseball, though, is not a hard-capped league. Owners could theoretically spend as much as they want on players, although not without paying a hefty competitive balance tax. The same goes for the NBA, but the NFL and NHL owners benefit from a hard salary cap that limits the earning potential of players. It seems NFL players are better positioned in bargaining than they've ever been given decreasing viewership and youth participation now. So what are the chances the NFLPA challenges the hard cap in 2021, and how ugly is this round of collective bargaining going to get? Will it end the way the players want with guaranteed contracts for all NFL players? You know, I absolutely think that uh, the players are going to take this and run with it and be very militant in getting uh, guaranteed contracts and challenging the cap. And I'm also pretty sure the uh, the owners would have the nerve to actually lock out the players from doing that. You know, it would oh, go yeah. it would go along with 
how they've just been so nonchalantly acting, and the league has been nonchalantly acting when it comes to passing, you know, unilateral workplace rule change with the anthem policy, et cetera. You know, and the, the one thing that's interesting is that, you know, this, this past collective bargaining agreement has definitely been an owner's agreement. It's definitely been in the favor of the team owners and the league itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think uh, last year, actually, uh, former NFL counsel for operations and litigation, Joey Balsam, went on saying that, in any case, the owners will always win any power struggle when it comes to collective bargaining because players have short careers and no guaranteed money or a contract. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, going off of that and then also going with the fact that the players – uh, have become more militant, as we have seen with uh, all of the backlash with the anthem protests, everything that's been going on. I absolutely have no reason to believe that they wouldn't uh, walk away and strike. Absolutely not. Uh, well, uh, losing the 2021 season is only going to cost them about $9 million, speaking of the owners or so. Uh, so uh, if they can stand to lose that, uh, I mean, how many years could we expect this to, to go on, do you think? Uh, you mean if a if there was a lockout or a strike? Right. I mean, one season's one season, but I mean, could could this go on to the 2022 season? Could there be no? Could there theoretically be no NFL for multiple seasons? And, and you know, at some point, the owners have to realize that they have less viewership and less participation in youth uh, football, and eventually, uh, they're going to have to start playing football again. I mean, it's just that's the way it's got to be, right? Absolutely. And I think, you know, yes, in any case, it could last for a very long time. But I think what you just said right there hits it on the head, right? Uh, Viewership is going down. Public backlash against the league uh, is increasing, especially with how they're treating players who take on social justice issues. And I think all of that plays to the players' union's advantage at the bargaining table, because not only now will they have the support of the entire union and all the players across the league, but now they can count on public support from uh, activists and other union members who have supported them through their struggle when it comes to taking a knee and uh, you know highlighting injustice when it comes to police brutality, racism, uh, and other social injustice ills that we're currently facing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that given all of that, all the pressure, and also given how quickly the league uh, and the union came to standstill uh, on the anthem policy, I think that's kind of very telling. Uh, that if this trend continues, then the league is going to have to realize that it can no longer flex its muscle because the power has shifted. Yeah. Uh, the power has shifted to the other side. The players now control you know, the bargaining chips come 2021. And as much as they'd like to try to say that they still have the power, it's not really there. Yeah. I mean, again, I go back to within hours of that story breaking uh, by the Associated Press. Yep. There was a joint statement. That is very telling about how the league is willing to sit down and try to, you know, find a quick solution so as not to have any more bad PR. Uh, Mike, with your background in contract law, can you just give us a quick rundown of how outrageous it is that NFL players don't have guaranteed contracts? Well, I I don't think you need a background in the law. (laughs) You're risking everything and you're guaranteed nothing, which is, I mean, unheard of um, in the scheme of labor. Um, with the use of franchise tag, do you think race kind of plays a role to this? Because, I mean, you're talking about running backs, linebackers, wide receivers. You never see any quarterbacks, you well, know, Kirk getting Cousins a franchise played tag. under a franchise tag for three seasons and never missed a game. Okay, that's one. Yeah, one. That's I, the only I, one. I generally see the quarterbacks, you know, getting these big, huge deals. And, I mean, we use running backs like they're just, just I don't know. What are you guys' thoughts? No, I think you're absolutely right. I think there is a, uh, a race aspect to that. Uh, and, you know, again, 
we've got one franchise quarterback, franchise tag quarterback. Uh, not only that, but just how we have seen the league kind of sort of just run, and team owners just kind of sort of run through all these folks like if they're just replaceable, right? They never worry about longevity. They never worry about building up or putting in programs that'll uh, improve health or maintain uh, their playing ability. I mean, look at the um, the uh, the whole issue with around concussions, right? That's just not coming to light. Uh, so I think that will actually uh, also play a part at the table. Well, and you also have to consider the uh, cannabis issue, which we will right after this break. Welcome back to Foul Play by Play. We're getting right back into the headlines. Dallas Cowboys pass rusher Randy Gregory has been reinstated by the NFL, ending a two-year banishment for repeat violations of the league's substances of abuse policy. Gregory's use of cannabis while at Nebraska is well documented, and he's told multiple media outlets that he used the drug to cope with anxiety. We've both expressed our disgust with NFL careers being threatened or ending because of marijuana, Mike, but with the state's act getting the support of congressmen and women on both sides of the aisle, it seems the end of cannabis prohibition will be determined by each individual state. And it's safe to say Texas might be one of the last states to adopt medical cannabis laws. But regardless of the laws in Texas, the state's act would still allow the NFL to prohibit cannabis use, medically or otherwise, and in states where it's legal or otherwise. With cannabis remaining federally legal, the NFL can pretty much demand what it wants of its employees regardless of state law. But the NFL Players Association can and should make it a point to demand cannabis probation end in the NFL. On the show about two months ago, we talked about a high school football player whose use of CBD oil, the non-psychoactive chemical in cannabis that has healing and pain-relieving properties, eased his seizures so he could play the game. But the 0.3% of THC, the psychoactive chemical in cannabis responsible for its euphoric effects, still present in his medicine made it impossible for him to realize his dream of playing for the Auburn Tigers due to NCAA rules. We don't want kids to give up their dreams of playing football for a living because there's fewer and fewer of those kids in existence every day due to concussion fears might seem like a strong message the NFLPA can use to get what it wants on this front. Is it, Al? And what are the chances the players make and win the right to use cannabis in 2021? You know, so I think that it'll definitely be something that comes up. You know, recently, uh, Martellus Bennett went on the record and Say that about 89% of players use uh, marijuana to treat chronic, you know, injuries and chronic illness. Wow. Um, not only that, but you know, uh, with uh, the Major League Baseball also reinstating Jenry and Mejia after a lifetime bad for PEDs, we see this mm-hmm. with this pattern developing that they're starting to change how they view it. Uh, and I also think that this again goes back into the fact that this affects this brings in a, a race issue because. All of these, you know, the criminalization of marijuana disproportionately affects African-Americans, especially African-American males and youth, which is exactly who the league is looking for when it comes to filling, you know, running back, quarterback, all that stuff. Right. Every player, so, well, every position except every quarterback, position, really. Except for, <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> but um, so, yeah, that's absolutely something that's going to come up. Um, and right now it's definitely 50-50 on how that could play out. But, okay. Mike, what are your thoughts? Just bring race and do it again. I mean, I used to love watching Brett Favre play, but it's funny how we had no problem with white athletes, you know, to abuse pain pills and whatnot. Mm. And then when you've got a drug like marijuana that's a lot better on your system and your liver um, than the pain medication of the past, I, I find it humorous that we're still punishing these players to, I guess, treat the injuries that the game gives them. I, I don't find it humorous at all, but I'm coming from uh, a, the standing of being a medical cannabis patient at one point. So it's enraging to me, but it's something that has uh, has to change, in my opinion. And uh, I think 
Carl Anthony Towns bringing uh, uh, his voice to this issue last season was uh, a big a big one, especially for I mean for all the leagues, not just for the NBA, but for uh, the NFL as well. So I think uh, more of those players, uh, like Al mentioned, Martellus Bennett coming out and saying you know what he did say, uh, that's just shocking to me that more than three quarters of the league would be using cannabis. Uh, All right, well, uh, that'll do it for this segment of Foul Play-by-Play, and we'll come back with uh, more headlines and then Cheats of the Week. And thanks for joining us again, Al, and uh, we'll be hopefully talking to you again next week. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. We're back at Foul Play-by-Play. It's the show that covers the cheats, cheap shots, and alleged criminals in sports every week. I'm joined by my attorney, Michael Haas. Say hello to the people, Mike. Well, hello, people. (laughs) Let's get into some more headlines. Milwaukee Brewers reliever Josh Hader's first All-Star appearance didn't go very well, allowing three runs on four hits in a third of an inning, but what awaited him after the game was even worse. Jeff Passan reported for Yahoo Sports that Twitter users uncovered a series of racist, sexist, and homophobic tweets Hader made over an eight-month period when he was 17 years old. Hader thrice used the N-word, used the fist emoji followed by white power LOL, and another time tweeted simply KKK. I hate gay people, one tweet read, and two months before the Orioles drafted him in 2012, Hader tweeted, need a bitch that can bleep, cook, clean, right? Hader's family and friends in attendance at the All-Star Game left Nationals Park with their Hader jerseys either inside out or covered by generic no-name National League All-Star jerseys. After the game, Hader called his comments inexcusable and said he was deeply sorry for what he said. There's nothing before that I believe now, he added. When you're a kid, you tweet what's on your mind. Regardless of age, though, those thoughts being on anyone's mind should be troubling to anyone. And in my mind, it's partially a result of just white old-timers being white old-timers and teaching their kids outdated and offensive habits. And partially a result of the segregation that persists in this country in the form of gentrification. Hader graduated from high school in Millersville, Maryland, where 55% of enrolled students are minorities, according to U.S. News & World Report, but 71.3% of the city's population is white. Here in Minneapolis, we have school segregation disguised as right to choose. That is, parents and students have the so-called right to choose in which school they want to enroll, resulting in taxpayers like me paying more to bus white kids to mostly white schools further from diverse neighborhoods in which they live. Maryland also prides itself as a right to choose state, offering vouchers to low-income students to attend private and charter schools instead of public schools where the majority of students are minorities. That wasn't the case for Hader, but he was sounding like Donald Trump before Donald Trump started sounding like Donald Trump. Hader's tweets were published a year prior to the 2012 election that didn't include Trump, but did see Barack Obama earn re-election by beating the pants off Mitt Romney. So from where does this seemingly growing racist and sexist sentiment of young white men start, Mike? Is it a direct result of the reign of white presidents coming to an end and a sense that white men's power is finally being threatened? Well, I don't know if it's a direct result. I guess, of the reign of white presidents coming to an end. Um, And I think it's more than just old white men teaching, you know, their kids to be racist. Um, I mean, kids learn to be racist. And I don't, I think a lot of the problem is not the fact that parents are teaching their kids to be racist, but parents need to teach their kids not to be racist. That's not the only place they're learning it from. I mean, it's a problem of environment. If you look at Charlottesville, all of that white hate group, I mean, those were young college kids. Mm-hmm. So this isn't just a problem of the old. It's it's an environment, a society and a culture that's teaching racism. 
Um, so it's more than just coming from the home. We've got to attack this issue across the board. Um, I mean, when you can turn on the TV or pop on the internet, I mean, there's a lot of hate out there that Absolutely. kids are going to find, and they're going to use that hate to alleviate whatever problems they see or have in their lives, you know? Uh, yeah, and I think we're starting to realize how addictive that hate is. Uh, the cover story for the latest issue of Mother Jones was on uh, organizations working to turn uh, haters, I guess is a, a terrible way to describe them, but uh, former KKK members, Klansmen and the like, uh, you know, get them out of that life and make them not hate anymore. And it's incredibly difficult. And in fact, the research shows that it's a lot like trying to cure addiction, which is damn near impossible. So uh, you can't you can't just go up to these people and tell them they're wrong. Uh, that doesn't get you anywhere uh, because their belief system uh, won't allow them to recognize that they are wrong. They can't be wrong in their mindset. Um, so you have to kind of approach them from uh, a different angle, which is uh, a really difficult one to do because it, it makes you, uh, it forces you to approach the situation from a standpoint of, you know, um, you attract more flies with sugar than you do vinegar type of idea. So you've got to shower them with love. Um, and I know that sounds very Jesus Christy, but maybe that's what we need in order to fix this problem. Well, yeah. And I think what's really alarming now in 2018 is the fact that this racism is kind of, I mean, it's always been here. Um, and I think it's going to be here for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. um, that it's kind of came out of the shadows, though. And it's front and center. And you have people saying just horrible stuff. And they're not even trying to hide it anymore. Right. Um, I mean, back in the 90s and 2000s, I mean, you would, the racism was there, but it was more of kind of a cover up. You know, you'd, you teach white people to hate black people by using, you know, um, kind of class tactics, yeah. of, you know, the welfare queen or whatever, and people are lazy and all this stuff. That's just not true, but you try to hide it behind something else. And now it's just, you can, you've got the president of the United States, you know, calling Mexicans rapists and murderers and all this stuff and without bad eye and Klansmen, very good people <laughs> in the case of Charlottesville. Oh yeah. And yeah, and that's, I mean, to me, racism is a tool used, I mean, just to divide us mm -hmm. instead of, you know, hating the people we really should be hating. I mean, it's, but... Well, hopefully we wouldn't yeah, have to, to me, hate anyone, but uh, the, the system that is in place doesn't really allow for that, does it? No, no, it doesn't. Um, and I think we need to take a more conscious effort to teach people not to be racist instead of, you know, avoiding, you know, talking with your kids about the N-word or anything else, I think... Instead of, you know, just trying to save them from these awkward discussions, I think you need to have these awkward discussions because they're going to hear and learn about this stuff out there in the real world anyway. Right. So, I mean, we need to be a little more proactive about it. All right, let's get into the next headline. The Jacksonville Jaguars defensive tackle Marcel Darius is facing two lawsuits alleging sexual assault. The first, brought by an unidentified Texas woman, accuses Darius of sexual assault and transmission of a sexually transmitted disease, according to Chris Parenteau of News 4 Jacksonville. The second lawsuit stems from an alleged incident occurring in Florida in January of 2017, according to Greg Amen of the Tampa Bay Times. Darius rented a mansion in Florida the week of the college football national championship game and allegedly invited the accuser to an after-party at the mansion, 
where she said Darius groped her against her wishes. She then blacked out from drinking too much alcohol and awoke next to a naked Darius, aware that sexual acts had been committed. Darius will move to have the second lawsuit dismissed on August 9th, uh, but regardless of how the lawsuits are settled, he would be subject to suspension by the NFL and for a considerable amount of time. The baseline suspension for sexual assault is six games, but the NFL hasn't had to issue a punishment for multiple allegations as of yet, meaning Darius could miss up to 12 games this season. Mike, how can we expect Darius's two lawsuits to play out? I mean, isn't transmitting an STD a felony that would require jail time to be served? It really depends on the state you're in. Um, like in Montana, transmitting an STD um, is a misdemeanor, mm. even if it's HIV or anything, as wow. long as you do it in um, other states like California. If it's HIV, one of the more serious ones, that's a felony where you can serve, you know, up to three to eight years in jail. Wow. Um, I'm looking at Florida, where the crime ha- allegedly happened. It's a third-degree felony in Florida if it's HIV, which the states that have different degrees of felony, that's more like a high-end misdemeanor. Right, and we um, don't know still, what sexual transmitted disease it was either. Yeah, so it depends what the disease is. It depends if he knew he had the disease. Mm. If it's involved in a rape, clearly um, he knowingly passed it on if he knew he had it. Right. Um, there's no uh, no way to get around that. So it's, it's serious. It would be with, I mean, a situation like this, it'd just be attack on to the uh, alleged rape itself. So well, it, whatever we get for the rape, it'd just be attack on um, it, more time. I don't think Darius is being charged with rape here. I mean, it says sexual assault and transmission of a sexually transmitted disease. Does that indicate, or... Uh, is that indicative of uh, consensual sex? But uh, I, I just don't understand how you could have sexual assault and transmission of sexually transmitted disease uh, unless it's rape. Well, I mean, it's sexual assault can just involve touching or whatever. But from the story you're giving us, I mean, if she blacked out, she thought uh, something sexual happened. I mean, the first thing that goes to my mind is that he penetrated her with his penis. Yeah. So that's clear-cut rape in my book, but... But then again, if it was just groping and whatnot, I guess it could just be sexual assault, or maybe they don't have that strong of a case, so they're right. Instead of trying to charge like sexual intercourse without consent, they're just going to try to charge a sexual assault, which would carry a lot less time. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's get on to the next headline. Arizona Cardinals general manager Steve Kime was suspended by the team for five weeks and fined two hundred thousand dollars after pleading guilty to extreme driving under intoxication on Tuesday. The suspension stems from an incident occurring the night of July 4th. Kime was arrested, booked, and released the same night. But shouldn't NFL GMs and owners be subject to the same conduct policy as players, Mike? Yeah, in my personal opinion, they should. Mm -hmm. I think it's ridiculous that you can have the players be punished like this and then the the owners of the Masters don't get punished at all when they do the same damn behavior. Yeah, I don't know what Kime's making, but $200,000 seems to be... Uh, maybe on par with what uh, players uh, end up losing in game checks, uh, you know, as a percentage of their salary. I can't imagine he's making, you know, too much more than a million dollars a year. Yeah. So, I mean, I think they should be subject to the same conduct. I mean, I think that's a simple answer, Tony. Yeah, it really is. Olympic figure skating medalist Dennis Ten was murdered Thursday in Kazakhstan by a man who has since confessed to the crime in presence of an attorney. Ten was stabbed after a dispute with people who allegedly tried to steal a mirror from his car in his home city. He died in the hospital of massive blood loss with multiple wounds, the Kazinform News Agency said. Uh, how sad is that, Mike? Once again, I don't need to comment much. That just sounds horrible. Yeah. 
Uh, just, I guess, don't go to Kazakhstan. Wasn't planning on it. <laughs> and with that, we will take a quick commercial break and be back with Cheats of the Week and your historically foul play. Time to tell you who's doping and doctoring balls. Here's the segment we call Cheats of the Week. Our dishonorable mention this week is Milwaukee Bucks center Thon Maker, who was suspended three FIBA matches for delivering multiple flying kicks during a brawl between Australia and the Philippines in a World Cup qualifying match on July 2nd. Do you agree that flying quicks by a seven-footer would be considered cheating in a basketball brawl, Mike, or is there no holds barred in that situation? I would disagree. I don't think it's cheating. I think you can use whatever advantage you've got physically um, during a brawl. And that would be really, really long legs in the case of Thon Maker. Okay, Thon, you're eliminated as dishonorable mention this week. Congratulations. Winner of the Bronze Balls Award, though, this week is Jacksonville Jaguars pass rusher Dante Fowler, who will not be removed from this list. He was suspended for just one game, the first game of the 2018 season. Fowler's Browns balls are massive as he refereed a fight between his baby mama and current girlfriend in February of 2016, a video of which TMZ released. Fowler also has 10 traffic violations since December of 2015 and is charged with misdemeanor battery and mischief after arrest on Tuesday. All of this comes in a contract year for Fowler, Mike. Good timing, eh? Yeah, I love the bronze balls here. We usually hear about, you know, dog fights when it comes to football players. Ooh. This time we got a cat fight. Ooh, 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 <laughs> ooh. That's, a, oh, that's good. The silver syringe this week goes to New York Jets receiver Ardarius Stewart, who tested positive for a substance designed to mass performance-enhancing drug use, Ian Rappaport reports. While a suspension hasn't been announced, it's expected to keep Stewart out for two games. And our two-bit cheat of the week is an actual Las Vegas cheat. Former New York Nick Charles Oakley was arrested in Las Vegas for pulling back a $100 chip he wagered after learning he had uh, lost it. I can't believe he was arrested, though. I mean, that's misdemeanor theft at its best. It don't misdemeanor thefts warrant arrest? Well, I suppose so. It was $100. I mean, that's that's considerable amount of money. <laughs> I, I, do you know what game he was playing? No, I did not get specific with what game he was playing. I imagine it was craps, though, because that's the easiest game that in which you could actually take a chip off the table without the one dealer I believe they have at the place, or I guess it's not a dealer, but the uh, the dice guy at the uh, table notice, noticing. I mean, that's that's the one game I could suspect that you could get away with it. No, I, I respect him. I've, I've made an attempt before to do the same thing, but then I chickened out, you know. Oh, of course good you for did. Him. <laughs> okay, well, let's get nostalgic and talk about foul play of the past when news was delivered on paper and milk in reusable glass bottles. Here's your sports crime history lesson we call historically foul play. On July 20th, 1944, en route to a 20-win season, St. Louis Browns ace Nelson Potter became the first player in big league history to be ejected and suspended for throwing spitballs. Potter denied ever loading up the ball with anything and returned to play a big part as a reliever and spot starter in the Boston Braves World Series appearance in 1948. The last player to be ejected and suspended for using a substance on baseballs is former Yankee and current twin Michael Pineda, who was ejected and suspended for loading the ball with pine tar back in 2014. Do you think or hope there are still guys loading up the ball like Ed Harris of Major League Mike, or is this mostly foul play of a bygone era? I hope there is. I think it's a lot more difficult with, I mean, the amount of cameras on a pitcher. Right. It's a lot a lot more difficult to hide stuff on the brim of their hat or under their hat or anything, but I guarantee there's still pitchers out there finding a way to get that advantage. Oh, yeah. I mean, why wouldn't you? If I was... So I was on my last legs looking at my last contract, I would be putting anything on the ball I could find, as Ed Harris said. Oh, yeah. 
just to give it that little extra movement. I don't see why they wouldn't do it. I think they should bring back the spitball. I mean, hell, people are striking out as if they're throwing spitballs. We might as well let them throw it. Christ, they're going to strike out anyways. Exactly. Okay, with that, that uh, concludes this episode of Foul Play-By-Play. And please tune in next time for the next episode of Foul Play-By-Play.